There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, here we are for another episode. Episode what, 83? 83. Right on. Last week, we started this discussion on investment risk, looking at the capital asset pricing model and how risk is priced into a portfolio. I know that's sort of a technical discussion, but it's basically just a combination of what they call the risk-free rate and the market premium. And when you sort of put those together in a calculation, it gives you your expected return for a given level of risk. Is that an easy way to describe it? It is. I think everybody fundamentally understands that risk-free is what the bank pays you in our terms. Anything over and above that requires taking on more risk. That's right. And risk and return are connected. Connected, related, they rhyme, all that good stuff. And today we're going to talk about risk in a different context. We're going to talk about other forms of it because, Greg, I got to tell you about an experience I had just the other day. Can I tell you? Okay. I went to a large Canadian box store. I was purchasing some new winter boots, something I haven't done for quite a while, actually. Given the weather, it's a good plan. Yeah. I was at this store and I found these boots that I wanted. And as I went to pay for them, the salesperson said, well, if I applied for a new credit card, I would receive an immediate 30% discount. Sounds pretty good, right? Sure. I told him, well, I don't really want a new credit card. After much convincing by the salesperson and their manager, I decided to go ahead with the credit card application to save the 30% on these boots with the idea that I would just cancel the credit card as soon as I got home. Of course. Now, that's not the problem. I decided to go ahead with this application. The problem was that the person that was entering the information for me was actually supplying the information. That's a problem. So we didn't even ask you. Didn't ask me any questions. They put in there that I had worked at my job for five years, that I owned my own home with no mortgage, and that I was a manager making $90,000 a year. Okay. So at least... They got the, you've worked at your job for five years part, right? For at least five years. That's the only thing. Everything else was made up. They're not answers I gave. So that manager or person that was entering the information knew exactly what answers to give to the questions to ensure that my credit card application would be approved. Now, this just seems wrong on so many levels, don't you think? Well, yeah, it seems, I don't want to cast aspersions, but because you didn't mention the store, it sounds a little fraudulent. Yeah, I'm not going to mention the store because I don't want to do that, but it does remind me of the great financial crisis or the global credit crisis in that back then you could do these ninja mortgages. Do you remember those? Let's see, no income, no job or assets. That's right. You could get a mortgage on a home without qualifying. And I feel like this is kind of what happened at the stores that there must have been Now, listen, during the days of ninja mortgages and the subprime crisis in the US, there was an incentive to the salespeople to ensure that there was mortgages sold. It feels like this was the same experience I had at this store. These incentives have us looking back at what caused the global financial crisis in 2008 to 2010. It actually started more like in 2007. 
but it's got to get you thinking. Are we poised for a similar event in credit markets? Like, is credit too easy to obtain? Is the velocity of money too fast based on how easily available credit is? These are questions we have to ask. Right on. So how do we approach this, Greg? Let's talk about it a little bit. And first of all, let's just do a refresher on the great, what is it? Is it the great financial crisis, the global financial crisis? We call it the GFC. Well, I think it, yeah, because it can mean the great, the global, and it could also be the global credit crisis. And I think we called it the Great Recession as well. Whatever we call it, it happened. And as you say, it happened and really affected us in the period of 2007 to 2009. And just as a refresher, that crisis was about home mortgages. If you recall in the lead up to 2006, home prices were escalating in the U.S. at an incredible rate. And of course, everybody was buying a home. Or multiple homes. Or multiple homes. And so there was lots of people financing those homes with mortgages. And hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages were repackaged into securities, which were called collateralized debt obligations or CDOs. So what's a CDO? Well, when mortgages or mortgage-backed securities are pooled together, they create a new security, which is called the CDO. And this collateralized debt obligation was just a way to repackage individual mortgages and so that this new security could then be sold off to other investors. Now, so the CDO now contains possibly hundreds of mortgages. It's divided up into what are called tranches or different levels of risk. And then each tranche is sold to investors and each of those tranches each carries a different level of risk or a different yield and a different yield or return. So for example, The risk in mortgages generally is that the borrower will not be able to make the interest and or principal payments, and therefore the borrower will default on that mortgage. In a case of a single mortgage, if the mortgagee defaults, then the provider of the mortgage has to try to get compensated. So they sell the property and hopefully the amount that was borrowed is recovered. So there's an expected default rate on mortgages. And the way that CDOs are structured, the first defaults will primarily affect the lowest tranche, so like the riskiest layer of this particular CDO. And so there are people at the bottom, they get the highest yield, but also they take the brunt of the first defaults on the group of mortgages. And as you move up the ranks to the top tranche of the CDO, that group would only be affected if a very large and unexpected number or percentage of mortgages in the CDO defaulted. Which would have been lower risk mortgages. Which would have been much, well, it would have just been, no, not necessarily. It would have been the way it was structured so that you've got 200 mortgages in a pool now. And so the first 5% of mortgages defaulting would only affect the lowest tranche. Now, what happened in the period leading up to the global financial crisis was that most of the mortgages in these CDOs were what were called subprime mortgages. And what that meant was the borrowers did not meet the basic requirements of a typical mortgage lending guidelines. And as you talked about, ninjas. Sorry, I meant to say like in Canada, when you go to get a mortgage, there's a qualifying total debt servicing ratio. Correct. Where they look at how much income you have and how much debt and has to be under a certain percentage in order to qualify for the mortgage. So sorry, go on with your ninja mortgages. Well, exactly. And so as the housing bubble was growing and growing in the US, many people that were buying houses, not only did they not have appropriate level of debt service, they didn't have income at all or assets as security or jobs for that matter. No income, no asset, no job or asset. Exactly. (laughs) And so these subprime mortgages are offered to home buyers who don't 
and wouldn't normally qualify. And what was happening at the time, if you recall, is just that house prices were going up so quickly that most of these buyers didn't think they'd have to worry about it because they could just wait for a year or two and then sell the property for thousands of dollars more than they paid for it. And then they would come up with equity where they started without equity. Anyway, bottom line is, so these are bad, bad mortgages. The high risk of default in those mortgages, particularly given that people would have to come up with money to pay for these mortgages eventually, even if they were subprime mortgages. But what happened is, so we're now bundling up subprime mortgages into these CDOs. So what they did though, is through that miracle of financial engineering, they took these subprime mortgages, which are highly risky, bundled them up into CDOs and actually created the top tranches of those CDOs got A or AA credit ratings. So the ratings agencies would go through and say, well, okay, because most of the defaults or the initial defaults are going to affect the lowest tranches of these CDOs, then the highest tranches would actually get high credit ratings, despite the fact that the entire pool of mortgages backing those CDOs were subprime and highly risky. So we know what happened in 2008 and 2009, the housing bubble that created this massive demand for mortgages burst. Millions of homeowners were upside down on their mortgages. And all that means is they owed more on the mortgages than their houses were actually worth. And so massive defaults, a huge number of mortgages went bad. And investors in the mortgage-backed CDOs were wiped out at essentially all levels, not just the lowest tranches, but even at the highest tranches. So important learning. So let's fast forward to today. The CDO market is still alive and kicking, but what's backing those CDOs is a little bit different. And today it's a little bit more about CLOs, which are collateralized loan obligations. So the structures are much the same as CDOs, except the securities in the CLOs are actually leveraged loans as opposed to mortgages. And leveraged loans are typically loans that are issued to less than creditworthy companies. So instead of pools of risky mortgages, CLOs hold pools of risky debt issued by companies that would be rated well below investment grade. So from a creditworthiness standpoint. And it's not a small thing. In fact, right now it's estimated that the current size of the CLO market is in excess of a trillion dollars, making it larger than the market for CDOs was leading up to the global financial crisis. Now, is that a red flag? To me, that's a red flag. Now, I'm not too intimately connected to the CLO market, but you have to believe that in times of relatively cheap money that we're in now, there's been a massive issuance of debt to corporations or by corporations. And if things went bad, it's the kind of thing that if everything goes well and interest rates stay relatively low and companies remain profitable or become profitable, that could be a good thing. But what you always have to worry about is what could go wrong. And I think that's where the risk lies. So these CDOs and CLOs you're talking about are asset-backed securities, right? Collateralized, meaning there's collateral behind them. But any asset-backed security is a type of financial investment that is collateralized by all kinds of different pools. Usually they're generating cash flow from debt, what you just talked about, such as loans, leases, credit card balances, or even receivables. Like there've been some asset-backed securities issued on royalties, for example, of a company. They take the form of a bond or note paying income at a fixed rate for a set amount of time until maturity. So that's all well and good. Like that sounds very much like a normal bond. It's issued with a term to maturity and it has a specific interest rate that it's issued with. 
So income-oriented investors, I mean, they like asset-backed securities as an alternative to other debt instruments, like you mentioned, corporate bonds or bond funds. But the problem, Greg, is that the underlying assets of an asset-backed security are quite often illiquid and they're hard to sell on their own. Exactly. So pooling these assets together and creating this financial instrument is what they call securitization, which simply allows the issuer to make these illiquid assets marketable to investors. You take It's very similar to what you talked about with collateralized debt obligations and mortgages. I mean, to sell a mortgage is that's a fairly illiquid instrument on its own. But to sell a pool of mortgages just makes it easier for somebody to want to own. So it gets these shakier assets off the books and possibly alleviates credit risk to the issuer, actually. So the underlying assets of these pools I mentioned can be all kinds of things. They can be home equity loans, automobile loans, credit card receivables, even student loans. There's even been things like cash flow from movie revenues, royalty payments, aircraft landing slots, toll roads. I mean, anything that's cash producing can actually be securitized into an asset-backed security. It's interesting. And back in the day, and I say that because I'm talking about the early 2000s, in those days when interest rates were actually reasonable, we would often have available for our clients what they called commercial paper. Commercial paper is just short-term notes issued by companies, and typically they would mature within a year. And there we had all sorts of commercial paper that were essentially asset-backed securities of collateralized credit card receivables. And those were very popular because they paid a better rate than Canadian treasury bills. Well, look at but, my experience at the store, right? Exactly. Like I got talked into a 20% interest credit card and I didn't have to qualify for it. Exactly. And of course, what the credit card issuers love are not people like you and I who try to pay off our credit card bills every month, but the people that don't pay the bills every month and are subject to those 20% interest charges. And then somebody baskets up all of those credit card receivables and sells them off as a bond. Exactly. Taking that illiquid security and making it liquid. So these investment vehicles came under tremendous scrutiny during that global credit crisis, global financial crisis, great recession, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of them were issued backed by things like, as you mentioned, US mortgages, with the idea being that when people are in times of dire straits, the last thing they stop paying is their mortgage. And I think that's why they got such high credit ratings individually. But Remember, these are illiquid in nature. I don't know. You have to ask, are asset-backed securities still around? Can I ask you that? You can. Do you know the answer? The answer is a big yes. Yeah, of course. There's been like $300 billion in asset-backed securities sold to the marketplace in the last less than 12 months. So in a world with very low yields and I would argue constant greed, there's many people that are looking at other types of investments to try to get higher yield. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, higher yield equals higher risk. But investors are limited to what they can do to achieve these higher yields. I mean, you can adjust your asset allocation, maybe hold more equities with higher dividends than bond rates. You could look at alternatives to traditional low-risk bonds, such like these asset-backed securities or collateralized. I have a hard time saying collateralized, by the way. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. But They do offer higher yields, but we have to remind ourselves that they come with higher risk. So I know some of the largest fixed income money managers in the world have been focusing some efforts on something that kind of maybe rhymes with subprime mortgages, and they're called re-performing loans. You heard of these? No, I haven't heard of re-performing loans, Colin. So what the heck are they? Well, interesting that you asked that, Greg. Let me answer (laughs) that question. 
A reperforming loan is a mortgage that has basically become delinquent because the borrower stopped making their payments and they hadn't paid for 90 days. So they've missed three months of mortgage payments. But it's called performing again or reperforming because at some point the borrower resumed making those mortgage payments. Okay. So these reperforming loans are just like any other asset backed security. They just get sold off as a basket of sort of bond-like investments. So Fannie Mae, which is the Federal National Mortgage Association in the US, this is an organization that helps make mortgages and rental housing affordable to millions of Americans. They've been carrying billions of dollars worth of delinquent mortgages since the housing crisis of 2007 to 2009. So what they're able to do is they can get these mortgages off their books by packaging up these re-performing loans, again, mortgages that people just have started paying again, and they sell them. Now, is this another red flag, I got to ask? And it certainly could be. And so much of it is dependent on what's going on in the economy at the time. Right now, the economy seems to be doing well, but that may not last forever. Yeah. I mean, this sounds really familiar. Maybe the big difference between what is happening with packaging mortgages or securitizing them today versus back in 2006 is what you talked about is Maybe there's only one tranche, and I'm just guessing. But in the lead up to the global credit crisis, we saw these mortgages packaged up, which was probably fine. But what ended up happening is synthetic pools of the same mortgages were created over and over again. So people were buying things that actually weren't the basket of mortgages. They were just like a financial derivative or something that just mimicked the basket of mortgages. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so you had how many securities out there based on essentially one pool of mortgages. It was more than one. You know, it reminds me of today is, and I know we're not supposed to really talk about cryptocurrencies and things like that, but NFTs. I don't know anything about NFTs, Greg. Are you familiar with this term? Well, I just know they're non-fungible tokens. And essentially it's a digital asset, kind of like a piece of art is an asset. Well, you can get a piece of digital art which would be exactly the same thing. Only you own it and you pay for it and it becomes marketable that if there's a buyer for it somewhere down the road, you could sell it at more than you paid for it theoretically. But how do you really know that you're the only one that owns an intangible asset that is only digitally created? Exactly. And what is the true value of something like that? It's only the true value is only what somebody's willing to pay for it. I liken that to maybe those synthetic pools of these mortgages. Now, Greg, I got to ask you, are we recommending NFTs to anybody? I'm not recommending it. To be honest, I don't know enough about it. For all I know, it could be worth way more in the future or way less in the future. I would consider that a highly speculative investment, and we typically don't recommend those kinds of investments. I actually think buying a bond issued by the government of Venezuela is highly speculative. I think NFTs are like... Highly speculative on steroids. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So what about the U.S. housing market? How is it doing right now, Greg? It becomes the question again, and that the housing market has been on fire in the U.S. And is the housing market overheated? And that's a fair question that lots of people are asking. Are we in a housing bubble? If we are, will that bubble burst? And what are the consequences of that going to be? We're seeing housing data hitting levels that we haven't seen since back in 2006, which was the peak of the last housing bubble. And we're seeing it in at least three different ways. So begging the question, is this another bubble like 2006? And a lot of experts say that it isn't, that it's just economics. So if you look in the U.S., I mean, nationwide home prices grew about 12% year over year, which is their fastest pace since 2006. 
That's based on the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index, which again has been around tracking housing prices for years. So gains were broad-based, and in all 20 cities tracked by the index, they experienced price growth above their respective median level. So whatever the average has been, they've certainly far exceeded that. And also, for the first time since 2005, the median sale price for previously owned single-family homes is higher than that for new construction. Now, that's interesting. The premium Americans typically pay to be first to live in a new house has been completely erased as home buyers have rushed to buy any home on the market. I never get that, why there's this premium to buy a brand new home. Like, I get it. Like, you're the first person that gets to live yep. in it. But new homes come with all kinds of things. Like, you need to build a fence and plant grass and all that stuff. Oh, sure. The expectation is, however, that a new home would be or could be more expensive because, of course, it's being built today at current prices. Certainly, what happened with lumber prices post-pandemic increased the costs of a new house dramatically. Wait, are we post-pandemic? Well, post, <laughs> post-initial pandemic. I thought we were inter-pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Intra, intra-pandemic. Anyway, but it is interesting that people will pay more for resale homes than they will for new homes. And just as an aside, we're actually seeing that in the used car market right now. In many cases, the price of used cars, if you can believe it, is exceeding the price of new cars. That's in, crazy. certain models. And that is crazy, but that's what happens when demand goes the way it has been going. So you look at the differences, though, to the mid-2000s. Back in 2006, dubious lending and market euphoria kind of powered that surge. Today's boom is almost entirely due to just a nationwide supply shortage. So if you look at the monthly supply of homes sitting near record lows of about three months, which isn't a lot if you're a buyer and you're out there shopping, And so that leads sellers to demand increasingly large sums for their properties. If you look back to 2009, post the bursting of the housing bubble, there was more than 12 months of supply available. And so you've got that issue going on. You've also got today's market, which is backed by more strong underwriting processes that we talked about a little bit early and is not engulfed in kind of like the subprime mortgage business that we went through. So you look at the price growth that we're going through, and that's pretty solidly rooted in basic economics. So you've got record low mortgage rates and heightened focus on space coming out of the pandemic. So that sent buyer demand through the roof. And you've got a pullback from prospective sellers and a lack of new builds and the increased cost of new builds, as we talked about. So you've got a decline in the homes available for sale. So that's just Econ 101, supply and demand curves. There's less supply and constant demand, or I'd argue even rising demand, prices have to go up. That's basically what's happening globally in all kinds of goods. It's not housing only. It's just called inflation. It's right. I mean, if the supply shrinks and the demand at a minimum stays constant, the price goes up, period. So let's finish this episode off with what can you do about it? We've talked about these sort of red flags of the credit market, collateralized debt, or collateralized loans, the size of the mortgage market in the US specifically, a potential housing bubble, don't really know, but prices have gone up quite a bit. What can people do about it? Well, I guess our listeners are going to get kind of sick of hearing these punchlines, but they remain constant. What are they? Regardless of what's happening in the collateralized loan obligation market, It really doesn't affect us on a day-to-day basis. What affects us on a day-to-day basis is our own future. So we start with a financial plan. Figure out what you want to accomplish financially in your life. 
and use that plan as a guidepost for whatever we do going forward from that. Yeah, I think we want to build an asset allocation based on the plan that tells you essentially how much risk you need to take on to achieve your goals. And we always acknowledge, as we've talked in the past, there is risk. There's risk in investing. And risk is two-sided. There's risk, good risk, which is that, okay, that our expected returns will deviate positively from what we expect and we'll actually get better returns. And there's downside risk that, okay, and we could go through periods where returns are not what we expect, they're lower than what we expect. And so we know that we have to take on some risk. We just need to take on the risk that we need and not more than that in order to achieve those goals. And you need to diversify your holdings to reduce that risk. Because as we all know, having a lot of one thing brings more risk than having a little in many things. That's right. If someone said to me, well, how concerned should I be and what changes should I make to my portfolio because I'm worried that U.S. banks are going to have a lot of defaults on their hands or they're holding too many CLOs in their portfolio? Well, the answer is we can't really do much about that. And if there's something simmering under the surface that's about to blow up, it's hard to predict and it's hard to know. However, by diversifying our holdings, we can make sure that, well, we are protected against something unexpected on the downside and that we'll come out of it on the other side as we have in the past. I think the other thing too is just avoiding complex structured investments where you don't actually understand how those things are structured. And you and I both know a lot of the collateralized debt obligations that we experienced during the great financial crisis were based around things called credit default swaps. Oh, let's not talk about those. And I don't even want to go into that, but suffice it to say that credit default swaps in a collateralized debt obligation became very complex engineered investment products. And for most investors and probably half the advisors out there or more, they couldn't really understand how they were structured. And if you can't explain it to a person in your own words, then you probably shouldn't own it. So stick with things that you understand. Most people understand stocks, bonds, real estate, cash. And if you have good diversification among those asset classes, you probably have everything you need. Yeah, whether it's in an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund or individual holdings, those all can be easy to understand. But yeah, when you start talking about credit default swaps, which is just a form of insurance against default in a collateralized debt obligation securitized by a basket of synthetic loans that don't actually exist. And divided up into tranches, which <laughs> which you don't even know what a tranche is. Yeah, yeah. So we're getting off topic. So we said, start with a financial plan, Yes. build your asset allocation, right diversify your holdings, keep your fees and expenses reasonable, understanding that there will always be some fees and expenses, but keep them reasonable. And your tax bill, because certainly taxes are just less money in your pocket and more in the government's pocket. And lastly, Greg, what is it? Rest and digest. Just enjoy life and don't worry too much about things that you have no control over. We always tell people, control what you can and the stuff you can't control. Let it happen and be positioned to enjoy the ride. Yeah, like I have no control over when my daughter will talk to me anymore. Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's the joy of being a parent. I should write an asset-backed security based off of royalty payments from when my daughter will speak to me. (laughs) That's right. And securitize it and sell it. Exactly. I think I'm on to something here. Okay, I guess that does it for today, eh, Greg? It does, yeah. No, I think we've covered that topic and look forward to moving on to the next topic next week. Excellent. All right, till next time. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.